you have a Bible, we're going back to John 4 for Give Me to Drink, part two. We're going to read beginning in verse 1 again. We'll just read through verse 26, John 4. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy food or meat. And then said the woman of Samaria unto him, Well, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Well, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, and neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, Well, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not thy husband. And that saidest thou truly. And the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. And we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said unto him, Well, I know that Messiah will come, who is called Christ. And when he is come, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And Father, you're the only one that can open our understanding and our hearts, and I ask that you'll do that this morning for us, Lord. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, and I ask you'll speak to all of us clearly, and I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. We said last week, last Sunday, that the purpose of our Lord Jesus coming to earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. And Wednesday night, we said that the basis for him to be able to do that, for the basis for him to be able to seek and save that which is lost, was his death. That he primarily came to earth to die, first and foremost. And the thing is, he didn't come to die for himself, did he? I mean, we know this is basic, but we can't say it enough. He came to die for us, in our place. He is our lamb, so to speak. So in the Old Testament, you had to lay your hand on a lamb that you brought or a bowl or whatever and confess your sins over that lamb and that lamb was slaughtered in your place. And Jesus is the lamb of God, John said, that takes away the sin of the whole world, the one lamb that's given to us. And that's the message that the church has preached ever since the resurrection because that is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said it this simply, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. This gospel is what we have to stand in, the basic gospel we stand in, and it's the means by which we're saved. He says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, he said, for I delivered unto you, first of all, 
that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins. And the basis for us believing that, and this is a controversy today, there's a big time minister down south that's saying, well, we don't need to know about Jesus and all that because the Bible says it. We don't want to say, well, the Bible says it, and that's why we believe it. We can just say we just know it's true that it happened. No, Paul says, I preach unto you that Christ died for our sins, and he says, according to the scriptures. That is critical. What we believe is based on the scriptures. And he also said that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Then he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. That's the gospel. That includes the fact that he was seen after his resurrection. Not just by a few people, 500 people. He said, most of them are around today. You can go check it out if you want to. You can ask any of them, did you see the risen Lord? Oh, there's 500 people to tell you, yes, we did. Amen. Sure saw him. The good news, the gospel, it must be declared, doesn't it? It has to be preached, witnessed to. Paul said in Romans 10, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Simple, isn't it? But, he says, how then, though, can people call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher or a person to share with them or one of us to witness to them? There's a lot of people in America today, they have never heard those simple truths of the gospel. That you're a sinner. You're going to die. You either are going to face eternal death yourself or, here's the good news, Jesus Christ died in your place. You deserve punishment. God's wrath is coming your way. That's what people need to hear. They need to know that there's a wrath to flee from, a wrath to come that they have to flee from. And somebody has to tell them that is what Paul says. The mission of our Lord Jesus Christ was to seek the lost through sharing. And that should be our mission. So let's just look at this again. We looked at it last week. Verses 34 through 38 of chapter 4, Jesus said unto them, My food is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. And say ye not, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. And he says, Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reaps receives his wages, and gathers fruit unto life eternal, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is... That saying true, one sows and another reaps. And he goes, I sent you to reap that wherein you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you entered into their labors. That message is the same with us. He's sending us forth. When we leave here, we should be going forth with the idea, the mindset that we're going to do what? We're going to reap. We might sow, but we should also be reaping too. Sowing and reaping should be something that is taking place in our lives. So Jesus received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he was baptized by John at the River Jordan. And from then on out, he was filled, anointed, and led by the Holy Spirit. We know that. Here's what we need to remember. He was fully human. Parenthetically, it's incorrect to say Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. He's not 100% God because that leaves out the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he is fully God, and he is fully man. He's both. But he was totally dependent as being fully man, just like you and I are, on the empowering of the Holy Spirit for direction, for wisdom, for power. And that's something to think about, isn't it? He was dependent just like we are. That's why he says the things that I did, you can do also. It's not like he's Superman walking around and he's something other than us. He was a man not like us. We'll see that here in a minute. When Luke 3, it says when John baptized Jesus, when that happened, it said he was praying. As Jesus was praying, the heavens opened and the Spirit of God, it says what, descended upon him in the form of a dove. From there on, Jesus is now clothed with the Holy Spirit. Because over the first 30 years of his life, we don't have any account of him outside of these foreign gospels that are written by who knows who. They have no accounts of him doing any miracles or any mighty signs and wonders. He wasn't living in sin, but that's when the account of everything happened was after Luke chapter 3. But then we read an interesting thing. He's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes down and envelops him. 
in Luke 3, but in Luke 4 it says Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan and then it says he was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. And that's what happened to him there. He was severely tried and tempted, wasn't he? The first thing that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ when he is filled with the Spirit, it's trial and testing. It's not immediately this miracle ministry. It wasn't immediately goosebumps and praise, was it? That's not what happened to him. But severe trial and testing. Just him and the devil in the wilderness. You know, John G. Lake said that's part of what has to happen before a ministry comes forth. God's got to know he can trust us with the miracle and the power, and he wants to do that. But he's led of the Spirit. Once he passed that test, then also in Luke 4 we read this, Jesus returned. So he was led into the wilderness full of the Spirit. But then we read in Luke 4, he returned in the power of the Spirit. That's how he returned into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. Filled, tested, and then empowered. That's the process we see going on there. Once the power of the Spirit was upon him, what was the purpose of that? It's the same for us. All this is in Luke 4. I'm just kind of progressing down through the chapter. But Luke 4 is when he comes back in the power of the Spirit. It says his fame went out. And he goes into the synagogue, opens up the Bible to Isaiah, and this is what he reads. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's now been anointed and empowered. Why? Why was the Spirit of the Lord upon him? He went on to say, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's why. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Everything that our Lord Jesus Christ did from the time of his empowering was to that end, to preach the gospel to the poor. Amen? That's what he did, preach deliverance to the captives. And I'm saying all that to say that's what he's doing right here in John chapter 4, isn't he? That's exactly what he's doing, being led by the Spirit. We labored that last week. He was led of the Spirit. He must needs go through Samaria. We're saying geographically that wasn't the case. He had another route that most of the Jews would have taken. But God was directing him. He was being led of the Spirit. He had to go up through Samaria. He's going to break down some barriers that have taken place. Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. That wasn't God. (laughs) God hadn't caused that hatred to be there. He's anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit leads him. And then he's given wisdom by the Spirit. Everything he said to that woman, the way he led her through the conversation, as we'll see, all of that was by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're to see there. Isaiah 54 says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary or thirsty. He just masterfully directed that conversation. And there's things we can learn from that. And that's what we should pray that the Holy Spirit will do for us. You get in a conversation with somebody and you realize God's opening a door here to talk to them about spiritual things. That's when you should inwardly be praying. You know, God, just give me your wisdom and what to say. Amen. Amen. And he will. And also, the other thing he's empowered by the Spirit You don't get much of this when you read these commentaries I have. But he's operating how? They'll say, well, that's God in him knowing all about this woman. No, it's not. He was, but his deity as far as his omniscience, he was not omniscient on earth. He was dependent on what the Holy Spirit showed him. He's operating a gift of the Spirit here, a word of knowledge, which we can do the same thing if God so chooses. Amen? Amen? I mean, we can't do it at will, but he couldn't either. Remember last week? I only do what my father shows me. I only say what he gives me to say. I only do the works that he shows me to do. I mean, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't walking around doing his own things as a man, totally dependent on the father. Through this account, what I want us to see today is God has given us an example, a pattern for how to win a soul. Through the Holy Spirit, direction, wisdom, and power. I would say... We're claimed to be, most of us, I think, in here, spirit-filled believers, following the Lord, 
We're all about the word. This should interest us greatly. It does me. We want to look at how Jesus, led by the Spirit, that's critical. That's why I said all of what I just said, ministered salvation. We're going to look at three things today. At verse 7, the first point I want to look at is his approach to the woman. The second thing is her need in verse 10. And the third thing, her exposure to the light, verses 13 to 19. Going through the story, beginning in verse 5, it says that Jesus comes to this city of Samaria named Sychar, and it says that Jacob's well was there. You can see that in verse 6. Now, Jacob's well was there at the beginning of verse 6. You know, Jacob had dug that well 2,000 years ago, and the Lord Jesus Christ is drinking from it 2,000 years later. And that's a long time, isn't it? And those people considered that well, the people of that region, they considered that well to be sacred. That was a sacred place. And guess what? It is still there today at the base of Mount Gerizim. Water still flowing. That is 4,000 years. It's a well that has a spring at the bottom. Now, it's not quite as deep now as it used to be because debris has been thrown down there. But it still is a well for 4,000 years. It's been giving living water because living water was an expression they used for any water that was flowing. God just took that and made a spiritual application to it. So it says Jesus comes to that well about the sixth hour, and that is high noon, and it would have been hot. And as I said, Jesus was fully man. So he comes to the well, he's tired, he's sweaty, and he's thirsty from walking in the sun. They would have had a wall that they would have built around those wells. And the reason they did that is... They didn't want animals and children to accidentally fall inside. So when it says he sat on the well, that's where he's sitting. He's sitting on the wall that was built around that well. And it gives us a vivid picture when we see that he's weary from his journey. That right there, we're talking about the humanity of the Lord Jesus. So he is hot and tired, just like you or I would be if we had just walked 20 miles on a dusty road that wasn't level. It's up and down. He's tired. He's weary. He's thirsty. And you think about that. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ coming down here. The one who made the sun. He's now wilting under its heat, if you want to put it that way. He made all the rivers, the oceans, the lakes, any water that is here. And yet he's thirsty for a drink. He's suffering from thirst. And John writes this at the beginning of his gospel back in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This Word, and yet John goes on to write in John 1.14, Yet the Word was made flesh. The Word of God that made everything we see. And He came down here and humbled Himself, became flesh, and it says, and dwelt or the word is tabernacled, because his body was a tabernacle. Literally, that's the Greek. It says he dwelt among us, King James. He tabernacled amongst us back then. So he sends his disciples to get food. You know, and you wonder, he sent all 12 of them. How many of them would it take to bring back lunch? You know, he sends them all away, and I think there was a good reason for that. It sits on the well, and you think about that. Picture this. There he is. God comes in the flesh. And this is what he's doing. He's tired. He's thirsty. And there he is sitting all by himself alone at a well. Now that would make a painting, wouldn't it? I'm sure somebody's come up with it somehow, made some kind of painting. But there he is. But not for long, because it says as soon as Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and she too is by herself. Now the fact she's by herself coming at noon tells us a lot. Because what that means is she's not on good terms with the women of the city. Probably nobody in the city as far as that goes. Because they would come. It was the woman's job to go get water. I'm sorry, women. That's just, that was what they did. The women would come and they would come early in the morning or they would come at sunset and they would come at groups. It was a social thing. I'm sure they had a lot to talk about. <laughs> Isn't that the way it works? They get their drinking, bathing, cooking, and cleaning water. But this woman isn't with him, is she? She's coming at a time. There's nobody there. She's an outcast, married five times, living with a man that's not her husband. She, so to speak, the old Hester Prynne, she had a scarlet A tattooed on her. 
She's kind of an outcast. Jesus asked her for a drink. That's what we have there in verse 7. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me a drink. And that's the first point we want to look at. Jesus' approach to witness to a sinner. So how does he begin in approaching this woman that comes to this well? What does he do? He asks her a favor, doesn't he? He's just asking her a natural favor. He really is thirsty. I'm sure he really did want a drink. You know, he's not just making that up for just whatever. Can you give me a drink? I don't know whether she ever gave him a drink or not. It doesn't say. She might have. She might not have. He doesn't have anything to draw water with, does he? No, didn't find that out later on. So he's saying, hey, can you give me a drink? Begins that way. Just give me a drink, please. He doesn't start in on her by getting all deep and spiritual, does he? He just asks a simple favor. He's not attacking her. What's he really doing? You think about it again. This is the grace of God. It's the grace of God that God has come down to talk to a sinful woman. It's his grace that he comes to talk to any of us. But look what he's doing. He's God Almighty. She has no clue. And he's putting himself at her mercy. That's the humility of how he approaches her. Can you give me a drink, please? Please is implied. It sounds like he's just demanding it when you read your English Bibles, but it's not that way. He's asking her, hey, can you do me a favor? The point I want to make with this first point and the way he approaches her is, a lot of times what people want to do is they want to put verse 26 where verse 7 is. Look what it says in verse 26. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he, telling her he's the Messiah. Some people want to do that first. He didn't begin with that, did he? He didn't tell her that, hey, I'm who you need, woman. Don't you know that? He doesn't tell her that, does he? I used to be like wanting to go out on the streets and witness because people had done that for me. And I'm thinking, man, people reach me that way and I listen to them. But I'm like, how do you approach somebody? Because it's like walk up to somebody. Do you know Jesus? It's like, huh? Some people do that. Do you know you're a sinner? Well, that's not a good way to begin a conversation. You know, if you want to keep things going. It puts people on the defensive. Instead, what's a good way to approach people? Ask them questions. You can ask about the weather, their hobbies, their kids. If it's somebody you don't know or, or whatever. Eventually, though, you're going to have to get around to either a question or a statement that brings up spiritual things, aren't you? That's the way it happens. You don't have to do it this way, but when we used to go out on the streets at night down in Barstown Road, I had them, I called them hippie tracks. On the front part of this track, it had all these famous people, mostly rock stars. Uh, John Wayne was on there, Elvis Presley, and a lot of rock stars. And it said, who are these people? What do they have in common? And I'd take a handful of those things out and just walk up to, uh, sometimes it'd be a group of four or five, kids in their 20s or whatever, or an individual. I'd never met these people before. Walk up and I'd say, hey, look at this. I'd say, do well, you know who these people are? Now, if that was me, I think I'd be like, buddy, what are you up to? What are you doing? You know what? I never had anybody ever say that to me. Instead, they'd take the track and they'd start trying to name who they were. The good thing about that and the reason I liked that was I'd joke with them about it. Oh, yeah, that looks like him. No, that, you got that one wrong. And, they, you know, you're kind of laughing and joking and putting them at ease. And then I finally get around to, so what do they all have in common? And it didn't matter whether they got it right or not. It really didn't. Sometimes they would. I said they got three things in common. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they wouldn't. But the three things were they're rich, they're famous, and the important thing was they're all dead. So if they didn't get it, I'd tell them that. And if they did get it, I'd be like, man, that is great. You know, most people don't get that right away. And then you just ask them, well, have you ever thought about that? What's going to happen to you when you die? And most people don't be like, buddy, who are you to ask me? No, they like to tell you what they think. And then conversation just goes from there. You've kind of built that bridge where you don't just jump into it, you know. But sometimes you can. Sometimes you can just ask somebody, hey, you know, have you ever thought about like where you're going to be? You can just be that direct sometimes. That works a lot of times. Like for me, too, I had some customers I worked with. I had one customer that I did a lot of work for. They gave me a lot of work, gave me a lot of money. And we became friends. Well, they knew I was a Christian, but I had never just directly asked them about their soul. The longer you let that go, the harder it gets to do. Because you're thinking, man, we're friends, and now all of a sudden you're bringing that up, and do you realize you know, you're a sinner going to hell, however you get around to that? It just gets harder to do, believe me. 
But these people, the, the man came close to dying one time, and I'm thinking, I don't feel right about not having ever said something directly to them. And so I went over to their house, and I just said, look, you know, we're friends. You guys have really been good to me. And I just said, I just feel like I need to ask you, how would you be in eternity if you died today? Or however I brought it up. So I don't mean to be offensive. They're like, the guy's like, I think about it all the time. I'm like, good, you do? That's great. And then the conversation just went from there. After having bring that up, I get a phone call about a week later. He's asked me some things about Christianity. Then he just calls me up. It's been a few years from that. Just called me up and he said, me and my wife want to go out with you and Lisa, they know Lisa, and have dinner because there's things about Christianity and about heaven that we want to talk to you about. That's how it works. But nobody wants to take that step. It's hard. It takes some courage. It takes some boldness. It takes some grace. It takes some praying, right? But that's what you have to do. You've got to, at some point, get the conversation on a spiritual line or it just won't happen. I could sit here and tell these stories, but that's not the point. The point is... We need to use our personality and whatever and not be offensive and gently bring in the gospel. That's what we're seeing the Lord Jesus do here. That's the point. I think there's a copy back there. An excellent book. Some people here have read it to help you understand how to use questions in an inoffensive way. Is It's called Tactics. Before I got hold of that book, I'd gone into prison and gone cell to cell doing evangelism for a long time. But that tactics just really helped me out to where when you start asking somebody, well, what do you think? And then the two things you just need to remember, what do you think? What do you believe about eternal life, about whatever you want to bring up? And then why do you think that? And you let them talk and don't interrupt them. And I'll tell you, the plus to that is when a person, instead of you doing all the talking and all that, when they've had a chance to talk to you, and you're giving them the respect of listening to what they believe, even if you don't agree with it, and asking a few questions or whatever. It gives you information about them, but it also gives you a right then to talk to them. It is very effective. And I noticed things at prison just went a whole lot smoother when I started putting those principles of that book into practice. And it's really just what the Bible has to say. We can learn from the master, can't we? Meet people where they are on a level they can relate to. Be all things, as Paul said, to all men. And use your personality. We don't need to have techniques and all that other. Just be who you are. But if you never intentionally steer a conversation into the spiritual or look for wisdom and how to do that, it'll never happen. You'll just keep talking about the weather and sports forever. Not that that's wrong, and sometimes that's just where a conversation ends. But Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. And that's what we see here. It's wisdom, not a natural wisdom, I would say either. It's wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Because God will give you things to say and give you the wisdom. And like I said, once the conversation gets rolling, he'll bring scriptures to your mind and things to say that you would never would have thought about. You couldn't have pre-planned any of it. It's just a matter of trusting him. The other thing is, I will say this, when you have a true concern for somebody, it comes through and they generally aren't offended. They can tell whether you're really concerned about that you want to see them have everlasting life. They can tell that. This woman here, she is amazed that Jesus is asking her for a drink of water. Now, I'm sure going down the road, she'd probably just pass the disciples. And those disciples being good Jews, they probably wouldn't even look at her. Probably wouldn't have given her the time of day. Here she is. She's like, what are you doing? You're talking to me and it's grabbing her attention, isn't it? Look what it says there in verse 9. And then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, will ask drink of me, who is a woman and a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She can't believe that he is talking to her at all. What's he doing here, though? Jesus is breaking all kinds of barriers, isn't he? He's talking to a Samaritan. That's a big barrier right there. He's talking to a woman. Because no rabbi is going to talk to a woman. Back then, the rabbis would teach husbands in public shouldn't even talk to their own wives in public. Let alone a single rabbi talking to a single woman in public. He's breaking all kinds of barriers there. And not only that, she's a sinner. Like I said, the disciples would have nothing to do with her. Look what it says in verse 27. Upon this came his disciples, seeing the two of them talking, and they marveled. What? That he talked with the woman. They're having a problem with this. It says, yet no man said, what, seekest thou? Or why do you talk with her? That's what they're thinking. 
what are you doing? <laughs> like I said, he's breaking down barriers here. I just went to hear these missionaries talk well, about a week or two ago at the seminary. We have a lot of Muslims, don't we, in Louisville, a lot of them. And he's saying, we don't think about it because when you get all, you're reading what's on the news accounts or like the Jews, all they hear is these reports about the Samaritans. They hate them because that's the way their culture is. We can hear all these things about Muslims and foreign people and they're over here to kill us and they're going to slit your throat and they're going to run our airplanes. And most of them aren't here to do that. And like these guys said, they would love if you came up and they said, all you have to do is it's this hard. What's your name? Where are you from? <laughs> Why did you come here? They'll tell you. Or, and end it with, is there some way I can help you around Louisville or around town? Just anything like that to start a conversation. You'd be amazed how the Lord could open up a door. Those people are way more social in those countries than we are here, aren't they? Would you have trouble probably getting one to come over to your house and have dinner? No, not at all. There's an outreach right over there just waiting to happen, anybody that wants to do it, right over there in Louisville. For this class, I had to go talk to a foreign person. I didn't, I'm thinking, I don't know where to find a Muslim at. I went to a Muslim grocery store somewhere in Louisville. I couldn't get there today if I had to. Somebody told me, go there. And I get in there, and I was the only white person in that place. And I walked up to the guy behind the counter. I said, I have to talk to somebody that's a Muslim or whatever. Can you find somebody to be willing to talk to me? Yeah, just hang around there, buddy. So I stood there for about a half an hour watching all these Muslims buy their food. And I'm feeling like totally out of place. And he finally says, this guy here, he'd be glad to talk to you. I had some questions I had to ask him, but I mean, it ends up being I got a witness to him for an hour. I had a great time talking to him. This guy would have had dinner with me anytime. Come over to my house, invited me over to his. That's just the way those people are. It's not that difficult to do. It's just a matter of doing it, really, isn't it? What I want to move on to next is, now that Jesus, he's got her attention, doesn't he? Comes to my second point in verse 10. He begins to show her her need. And look what it says in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that said unto thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given thee water. If you only knew, Jesus is saying, if you only knew who I was and what I have to offer, you would be asking me for living water. He's like, you have a need that you're not aware of. It's basically what he's saying, but I know. Isn't that really what he's saying? Why does John have this here in this account? He's not just reporting what Jesus said to her. He's trying to get our attention, the reader's attention in the same way to make us realize the significance of who this is that's talking to this woman, who we're reading about, and what he has to offer. Maybe you've never heard this. The whole purpose for the Gospel of John, he gives it at the end of his book, back in chapter 20, verse 31. He said, I could have written enough stuff to fill all the books in the world of what I saw the Lord Jesus Christ do. The whole world couldn't contain him. But he's only selected certain things to put in his gospel. And the purpose for that is, he says this, they are written, what I have written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. He's telling this woman, if you only knew the gift of God, if you only understood how tremendous the gift of God is, and he's saying that to any sinner that ever reads this gospel, and he's saying it to us, because it's still the case, because she didn't yet understand, did she? But she would. Only knew what you need and what I'm offering. What was the gift of God that he's talking about? Some people will say that the gift is Jesus and I believe that's true to some degree. Couldn't make a case against that. He's called the indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Or you could say, well, he's talking about eternal life. Romans 6.23, it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But I think that the gift he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit, the living water. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, you could have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. And that's how Jesus described the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, verse 37. He says, if any man thirst, 
Let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. It is impossible, he's saying, if you only knew the gift, it's impossible to overstate the wonder, the privilege, the power, and the incredible grace that is given through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a him, not an it. And we have God himself living in us, walking in us, speaking to us. I mean, that's beyond description. None of us understand what we have in having that gift. And that is the great promise. The Jews, that was the great promise when the Messiah was come, that he would pour out the Holy Spirit on them. That was the promise they knew about. Isaiah 12 says, with joy shall you draw out of the wells of salvation. And Isaiah 44, 3 says, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And the invitation is given back in Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, he that is thirsty, everyone that thirst, come to the waters. It's a gift, a free gift. You can buy without money and without price. That is the graciousness of our God. Jesus is the source, though, isn't it? Because that's what it says. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and sends it on the church. And that's Acts 2.33. Therefore, once he's risen, Peter said in his speech, his preaching, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth or poured forth this which you now see and hear. He said, if you only knew the gift and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask of me. And I would give you that living water. He's the one that gives it to us. Amen? Gives the Holy Spirit to us. Amen. He says, if you knew the gift and who is speaking, he's saying, you don't realize who's speaking to you, woman. You don't realize how great I am. And do we, when we read these gospel accounts, do we realize who is speaking to us in these gospel accounts? Hebrews 1 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the woman needed to realize who it was that's speaking to her. And she will eventually. But do we realize who's speaking to us? And especially if you're in here and you're not a Christian, do you realize whose voice it is that's trying to draw you to him? Do you realize who that is? Because once you understand who the giver is and what gifts he's offering, it is not hard to receive, is it? Look what it says at the end of verse 10. If you knew who the gift of God is and who it is that says unto give me to drink, look what he says. He says, you would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. It's as simple as asking, isn't it? And it says he will give. Why is that? It's because he wants to. We can sometimes make faith way too complicated, can't we? Am I believing? I'm not sure if I'm believing. I don't know. You can make it way too complicated. It's as simple as what he makes it right here. It's as simple as asking. And when you know you've done that and you've asked, you can know then that God will do his part. The only thing that's going to short circuit that is sin. Otherwise, you're not living in sin. It's going to happen. He's faithful. First John 5 says what? This is the confidence that we can have in him. That if we ask, that's all he says to do. Ask anything according to his will. He hears us. So we do that. Don't get all hung up on him. I believe it or not. I don't know. I can't feel like I have faith. Are you asking according to his will? Well, if you do that, then you can know that he hears you. Ask according to will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we ask. We know that he hears us. Then we can know something else. We know that we have the petition that we desired of him. We're not waiting for it. We have it. Amen. Yeah. That's simple, isn't it? 
I mean, it really is. You could, a little kid can understand that. Luke 11, everyone that asks receives. Now, that's not hard to understand, is it? You tell your child that, if you want a dollar this week, just ask me and you'll get it. They don't sit there and get all nervous about, man, I don't know if I'm really believing that or not. What do they think? They think, okay, well, all I got to do, he told me, is just come ask and he'll give it to me. Simple, isn't it? We can't make it complicated, but we tend to. And he wants to bless us, just like that woman. That's the purpose of his conversation. And he goes on to say, this is the end of Luke 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? And Matthew says, good gifts. That's what we're talking about here, the Holy Spirit. To them that what? Ask him. It's simple. He doesn't tell the woman that you have to plead, you have to beg, you have to work for it. He uses the simplest word that he could use in the Greek language, ask, at 10. It's a simple word for ask, nothing complicated about it, just to ask. In other words, as I read a guy say, he's putting the cookies on the lowest shelf. <laughs> putting the cookies on the lowest shelf. Telling her if you'll ask, that's all the faith you need. All we have to do is to see that he has what we need and ask for it. And he says, I'll give it to you. She says, if you ask, I'll give you that living water. And she's confused about what he's saying. Though. Look what it says here in verses 11 and 12. And the woman said to him, well, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She's like Nicodemus in the previous chapter 3. He's talking to her in spiritual terms, but she can't get past her natural understanding. Sir, like you don't have a bucket. You know why he didn't have a bucket? The disciples had the bucket. When those guys would travel, they would carry this leather goatskin doohickey to drop down in a well. Well, he didn't have it. They had it. Took it into town. And she's saying the well is deep. That well is over 100 feet deep. Where are you, she's saying, where are you going to get this living water? And then she says something in verse 12, I think it's pretty remarkable. She says, what are you implying by what you're saying? Are you greater than our father Jacob, the great patriarch, the one Moses wrote about that met with God? He gave us this well to drink from, and he didn't not only he drank from it, but his children and his cattle, and we're privileged to drink from this well. And you're going to say that you're greater than him? She's asking him, and Jesus is thinking to himself, Yes, I am. I do think I'm greater than him because I'm the one that created him. I'm the one that protected and blessed him when he left Canaan and went up to Haran. And I'm the one that was wrestling with him that caused him when we were done to say, I have seen God face to face and yet I live. Oh, yeah, I think I'm greater than him. <laughs> but he says, if you only knew. Remember, that's what he told her. If you only knew, he said, do you give me a drink? But he still doesn't tell her what he knows, does he? Still doesn't announce who he is at this point. Because he's got something else he has to do to her, which brings us to the third point. He has to expose her to the light. So he's going to make her thirsty for the living water by, first of all, pointing out the temporary satisfaction of earthly water. Look what it says there in verse 13. Jesus answered his senator, Whosoever drinks of this water from this well shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into life everlasting. He says, yeah, Jacob was a great man. And this well has been a blessing to you. But guess what, honey? You have to keep coming back again and again. And again, and you're always thirsty. But the water, he says, I'm offering you will satisfy your thirst forever, not just for a moment. He said, this water, though, is going to keep springing up. It's going to keep bubbling up. Literally, the word means to leap up. It's energetic. It's powerful. And he says, your thirst with this water I'm offering you isn't going to just be for a moment, but day by day, year by year, eternally. It'll be satisfying to you. What he's talking about, though, there in verse 13, it not only applies to water, but to every attempt of the world to satisfy that deep thirst of their souls. Those words 
You could make a sign and put that over every bar in the United States. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. It could be put over every movie theater, every sports stadium, over every TV program. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. As you think about it, I know the way I was before I became a Christian. I worked. Everything I did was for the weekend. That was going to satisfy my thirst. But guess what? Monday always came and I'm thirsty again. No satisfaction. For the world, it's the car, it's the house, it's the vacation, it's the next wife or husband, but they are continually thirsty, aren't they? Drinking from stale cisterns. And that's the case, what we have here with this Samaritan woman. So she's coming to Jesus, and her soul, he knows, is empty, barren, and thirsty constantly trying to fill this thirst. And how do we know that? And he it brings this out because he says, call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, you said rightly on that because you've had five husbands. You've been trying to quench that thirst in your soul every way you can, and none of them are working, are they? That's what he's telling her. He's exposing her sin. He's also, though, exposing her need. And look at the way he does it, though. He's nice about it. I'll guarantee you, it startled her when he said that. Call your husband. Wait a minute. Wait. And then, yeah, you've had five husbands. But he's gentle about it, pointing out she's still thirsty. You'll hear people say about sinners that they have a heart for God and they're searching, or those poor sinners are seeking for God. We need to quit saying that in this church. Why? Because until conversion, nobody's seeking after God. And that's what the Bible says. It says this in Romans, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. And it says there is N-O-N-E, none that seeks after God. None. They are all gone out of the way. All gone out of the way until the Holy Spirit draws you. Isn't that what Jesus said? No man will come to me unless the Father that sent me does what? draws him. That's not going on with somebody. This one theologian said, I thought this was good. Such people are not actually seeking God. They seem like they are, but they are desperately seeking peace, seeking relief from their guilt, seeking something to fill the emptiness of their souls and their lives. That's what they're seeking. So it's a paradox. The life of a sinner is a paradox. They're desperately searching for the things that only God can give while at the same time they're running away from Him. They are. I was. Every sinner is running away from the Lord until He draws you. So this woman, when she hears of this living water Jesus offers, she desires it. Not just so she won't be physically thirsting again, but she's not liking making this trip every day. Everybody knows why she's leaving at noon, why she's going by herself. It's humiliating. For her. She's embarrassed. She's lonely. Look what it says there in verse 15. She, the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. And she ends it by saying, I neither have to come hither to draw. And Jesus then, he brings her into the light because the only way that she's going to be able to drink of that true living water is to have her life brought out into the light. Her sickness has got to be exposed. Because what did Jesus say? They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are what? Sick. And sinners don't realize they're sick. That's why if you come up to somebody, do you need Jesus? They may be like, what do I need him for? I like my life now. And they may not realize how sick they are. And that's what the law does, doesn't it? That's what the Word of God will do. It will expose their sickness. The divine light of the heavenly physician will clearly show the sickness for what it is. And that's what's going on here. That's what he's doing. He's bringing out that she's an adulteress. And she's never going to find satisfaction the way she is. She's a sinner. Isn't that what he's telling her here? Yeah. So look back one chapter to John chapter 3. Verse 17, John 3, 17, it says this, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In verse 19, this is the condemnation. So if a person's condemned, it's not because God sent Jesus to condemn him, but this is the reason, this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The purpose of the gospel is to show men, a man, a woman, what their true spiritual state is, and then offer them the remedy for it. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. But that's all has to be included in it. God greatly desires to give people this living water. But first, what has to happen? Their sin has to be dealt with. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can do that. He is the only one that can bring conviction and repentance. It all gets back to you have to have an anointing to do this. Peter in Acts chapter 2, through the power of the Holy Spirit, preaches the sermon and his words pierced by the power of the Holy Spirit, pierced through those hearts of the people that hear it. And he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says, when they heard that, this, it says they were pricked in their heart. What happened? Through the Holy Spirit, Peter is bringing their sin. He's bringing them into the light, isn't he? bringing conviction upon them, and it cut their heart. Just like this woman, that took courage for her, didn't it? Jesus is right there exposing her sin. Now, she could have told him off, none of your business, what are you doing, and gotten away from him, grabbed her water jug and taken off, couldn't she? But she stayed there under the light. And that's just what happened to these people when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. They stayed under the light, even though they're convicted cut to the heart. And instead of running from that conviction, what does it say? They cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? I need to do something. I'm thirsty now. That's what they're saying. And what was Peter's answer to them? What's the first thing they need to do? What's the first thing you need to tell any sinner they need to do? Repent first. Because without repentance, without a turning from sin, there is no forgiveness. They have to know what they're repenting from. If you haven't told them they're sinners or that they're in sin in some way, and not even in a general way, everybody would say they're a sinner. I would have said that. But without repentance, there's no forgiveness. There is no cleansing. Proverbs 28, 13, he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. So as a Catholic, they'll tell you to just confess it and come back next week and confess the same thing again and confess it, confess it, confess it. But they leave off the big thing is you'd better turn from it once and for all. Forsaking it means you're not coming back. Whosoever confesses and forsakes their sin shall have mercy. And the second thing he says is baptized. Repent and be baptized in every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's an outward display of what's happened to you on the inside. That's what baptism is. There's no saving power in it. But he says, well, when that happens, that's what Jesus has to happen to this woman. He says, I want to give you this living water. But first, we got to get something out in the open. Get this sickness out in the open. Rip that bandage off. Rip that covering you have on it off. Rip it off. Because she's like, well, I have no husband. No, wait a minute, honey. You're right about that. But look, the, the guy you live with isn't your husband. Let's get the truth out here. Let's get it all exposed so we can deal with the sin. And then I can give you this living water. And that's the way it works. Because after repentance and forgiveness, the way is opened. And Peter said this, repent, turn from your sins. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, you shall receive the gift of living water, of the Holy Spirit, for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Nobody wants to hurt somebody else's feelings about telling them about their sins. Nobody wants to do that. 
Nobody wants somebody to be upset with you because you said it. And I'm sure this woman, though, when Jesus said what he said to her, I think she was probably startled and offended when he said that. He brought her sin to light. But listen, it had to happen, didn't it? So he was truly showing her love and exposing her sin. He had to awaken her conscience. Like I said, he's operating the gift here, the word of knowledge to do that. And to me, this is a great example of 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? What did Paul say? Operate the gifts, but 1 Corinthians 13 is in there to say, do it in love. Don't do it for selfish motives and all that. I mean, that is what he's doing. A gift is here operating in love. We know Jesus didn't come to this well like we just read in John. He's acting out what we just read in John 3, 17 and following through 21. He didn't come to this well to accuse this woman, did he? He didn't come to the well to condemn this woman. He came to the well to do what? To give her living water. That was his purpose. But he had to expose her sin so that she could repent. Couldn't happen. She couldn't receive eternal life. She couldn't receive that water until she had repented and acknowledged her sin. So what we need to think about is this. Are we greater than Jesus? Are we wiser than he is? That we're not going to do what he did through the wisdom of God. Are we smarter than him? We don't want to talk to people, like I said, in a self-righteous way to condemn them. But we need to approach them. I think this is a good way to approach people, isn't it? We're beggars coming to other beggars, telling them this is where you can get living water. And you do it that way, and people are not going to be offended. They aren't. You know, I've had these guys working at my house lately, and my approach to them has been like, look, I always hated them when somebody preached to me. But you know what? Somebody did one time, and I'm glad. And let me just share this with you. Here's how God dealt with me. And then you talk to them about, hey, where are you at with all of this? And when it's like that, they don't get mad at you. Even if they don't fall on their knees and repent like that, they're just not offended. Beggars speaking to beggars. But we need to consider that Jesus said in Luke 13, he said, unless you repent, unless a person repents, he said, you shall all likewise perish. And repentance is critical. And how can people repent if they're never exposed to the light? Never tell them that they've broken God's law and deserve his wrath. How are they going to know to flee from the wrath to come? And that's why today I praise God that Billy Graham was on TV when I was a teenager. Because he did say, hey, if you're drunk, if you're living in fornication, if you're looking at pornography, if you're breaking God's law, there's a judgment day coming and you will go to hell. And I would hear that and I'd think that is where I'm headed. God have mercy on me. I would say, well, one day I'm going to get my life right until one day God said, you might not have that long as you think. It put a fear in my heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I praise God. I praise God for that young man that came up to me when I was drunk one night, stuck his finger under my nose and said, if you die tonight, you're going to go to hell. Get out of my face, man. I didn't want to come here to hear this stuff. And inside I'm thinking, man, he's exactly right. I knew he was right. If you're here today and you know that your life is like this woman, any of us, and all of us to some degree, aren't we still thirsty and empty to some degree? Don't we all tend to fill our life up with things that we probably shouldn't as much as we do? That's all I'm saying. Stagnant water of the world's promises. Maybe you're here. Maybe that's you. Sex, pleasure, entertainment, your career. Each day you wake up, though, and you know my life is just a meaningless void. Hear the word of the Savior. You're going to thirst again and again and again. But if you'll just accept him, receive him, not accept him, receive him and repent of your sins, he says, I'll give you water. You'll never thirst again. That will spring up, will bubble up into life everlasting. Let's finish by reading verses 13 and 14. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoso drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And those are words from the Son of God that came in flesh to tell us that. The good news of that. Amen? Amen. 
Let's bow our heads. And Father, I ask the Lord that you'll not only speak to our own hearts about who you are and the gift that you've given us and will continue to fill us with, and I ask you, Lord, that we'll be more thirsty for you than ever. You'll create that thirst in our hearts. But I also ask you, Lord, that through your word today, you'll show us that how we can minister this life, this life-giving water to others, and that you'll put it in our hearts to do that, to look for opportunities, to pray that you'll open up doors. And when you do, Lord, that we'll pray that you'll give us the wisdom and how to talk to people, Lord, in the gentleness and the meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be people that pour your water into other souls, that the water that is in us we're able to share with others. And I thank you, Lord, you'll do that for us here. And you'll speak to all of us today and through this week. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.